0: Welcome to the AOA podcast series on lessons in leadership. My name is Ann Van Heest, and I'm honored to serve as the 2023-2024 AOA president. As we discussed in our August 25th podcast, part of my AOA presidential duties includes joining the orthopedic carousel. These are presidents from five English-speaking countries, and we attend each of each other's annual meetings. The AOA is a leadership organization. As we discuss lessons in leadership, we can learn so much from the leaders of other countries. The diversity of our profession includes the diversity of orthopedic surgeries in other countries of the world to compare and contrast to our own. One of the meetings that I am excited to have attended is the South African Orthopedic Association meeting in Cape Town, South Africa from September 4th to September 6th. I am pleased and honored to host the SAOA 2023 president, Dr. Basil Bratos, in our podcast today to discuss lessons in leadership from his vantage point. Thanks, Basil, for joining me today for this conversation. So, Basil, can you start first by telling us a little bit about the SAOA Mm -hmm. and the meeting that you just held?
1: So, the SAOA was started in 1942 and it really was at after a donation from Nuffield, William Morris, Richard William Morris from the UK, um, and that was to fund uh, orthopaedics in South Africa. Um, that was the beginning of the SAA, but it was called the Orthopaedic Surgeons Group, and then in 1951 it became the Orthopaedic Association of South Africa. It was the following year that we joined the sister societies, and we received the jewel of office from uh, the queen mother at the second comac meeting in the uk
0: and tell me a little bit about the saoa itself how big is your organization and what are the offerings that you have for your members
1: so we have about 850 full members and the the association really looks after both the public and private sector, we have a public and private sector committee, and we deal with a lot of insurance issues, uh, any problems in the in the private uh, the government sector, and we we sort of represent them in any um, dealings they have with the, the health authorities or even government. We do a lot of education, so we do a lot of uh, training uh, programs. and We also look after our subgroups and we support the subgroups who though many of them are separate, they still f- fall under our umbrella and we support their meetings and they support our meeting.
0: So tell me a little bit by subgroups. Mm. You mean, would that be the subspecialties?
1: Yes. So like, like I'm part of the Shoulder and Albers uh, Society um, and uh, so we, we fall under the umbrella of the orthopedic association. Though we do, we do run our own meetings at times, but we always support the local meetings. So every year we will have a session or a day and, and that will be more more before the ge- for the generalist orthopedic surgeons because we have a lot of generalists maybe compared to the united states because we have um, doctors working in areas where they have to be able to deal with everything and so the, so those so our meeting is aimed at the generalist with the subgroups participating and educating them
0: yeah that's one of the issues that we've seen as we travel across the world is that relationship between yeah. the subspecialties and the Generalists. So, what I hear you saying is that most of the orthopedic surgeons in South Africa are generalists. Do you have an idea of how many of your registrars are consider themselves generalists versus a specialist?
1: Um, you know, if you look at the main centres, so the super specialisation will really only be in the main centres, and um, there will be a lot of people who are generalists, but they have a special interest, but they will still do. Definitely, definitely you still do general trauma. But also in, so in Johannesburg, Cape Town and Durban, which are the major centers, you will have super specialists. In the smaller centers, you don't really have super specialists. Someone will have an interest in a subspecialty. So we have to look after them. But it tends to, what we tend to find in the major centers, patients will choose their specialist, certainly in the private sector. So they will choose a super specialist. in the the smaller centers they would go to who is is available.
0: Well, good. Well, let's talk next about leadership. Mm -hmm. So the AOA is a leadership organization, Mm -hmm. and I'm interested in your journey to becoming president of the Mm -hmm. SAOA. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and any tips that you might have for Mm -hmm. our young leaders?
1: Yeah, I think my journey was um, I was often at the right place at the right time. It wasn't... uh, that I uh, think I was a bit of a reluctant leader, but anyway, I started, probably what really set me off is when I did a fellowship in the UK in 1997, and the only reason I applied, I was doing shoulder and elbow surgery at the university, but I hadn't done a fellowship, and um, my colleague who worked beside me, he went and did a fellowship in Oxford in Spine, so I thought, well, I better, maybe I must do the same thing, so I applied to the UK and got, uh, got a, a fellowship in Nottingham in Uh, shoulder and elbow surgery and uh, that was really a pinnacle part of my career because unbeknownst to me at the time is that the person I did the fellowship with was one of the founding members of the British elbow and shoulder society and so through him I met the others and then together him his name was Angus Wallace and his uh, good friend and the other one of the other founding members Steve Copeland became very close And, uh, and they really put me on a path uh, and supported me and i think with soon soon after that uh, i went on the abc fellowship and then the third thing was that in 2001 so the abc fellowship was 1998 2001 i was um, I, I, I was the scientific chairman of the international meeting the international congress of shoulder shoulder surgery which was held in cape town and so that and we, we got um, delegates from all over the world and that really, actually that was the start of well, the explosion of our shoulder society because after that our shoulder society really boomed and soon after that I became secretary and then I became the president of the shoulder society and then after that it was actually I think at Comoc in 2016 the president then of the South Peaks Association asked me if I would be president would I stand to be president and I said, "I said it's the last thing from my mind. I, said, I don't want to do it." I said, so "I've been enough anyway." But um, and then so if, it
0: sounds like mentorship was a, has been a really important yeah, thing yes, for you. Yeah, yeah. Like Very you nice weren't night. out there choosing leadership, but you yeah. had some mentors that chose it for you.
1: You know exactly, exactly, and, and uh, you know particularly Angus and and Steve Copeland, and then of course there was that older gentleman that taught me how to do elbow surgery that was at our meeting, Rail Jeffy. Yeah. He was really, um, uh, he was a true mentor. Well, they were all true mentors. But uh, it it taught me the importance of mentorship, which I think we've lost a bit.
0: So what advice would you have about finding a mentor or being a mentee or being a mentor? Like what's been important for you in mentorship relationships?
1: I think it's a a two-way it's a two-way street uh, 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 because you learn uh, in a mentor just being a supporter of that person and giving them advice. And it's not about training them. It's about all the other things. Because the training, you can train anyone to do an operation. It's, the, it's, the, it's how you approach your profession, but maybe approaching life as well. Because, uh, in fact, I think that's probably the, one of the most important things. But you also learn from your mentor. So reverse mentorship. Yeah, which I I learned a lot, especially these days, from the younger guys because they showed me how to use the computer. <laughs>
0: yeah, and I think at that time, shoulder and elbow was a fairly uncommon subspecialty. Is that yeah. correct?
1: Correct. Yeah, and yeah. No, it was it's it's really so. You really
0: so. kind of got in on the front of the wave yeah. of that being a subspecialty.
1: That's right. So it was um, it was in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was when our shoulder arthroscopy first started. And um, it was—I can't remember in the state. Steve Snyder and a couple of others who from America who started it, and then of course it got spread around the world. But when I started in the later nineties, it was really starting to gain traction.
0: Well, it sounds like the choices you made, and what you might say is serendipity, but really meeting the right people mm, yeah. is what helped yeah. you on your leadership yeah, path. Yeah,
1: even if, even if it's by chance. <laughs> 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 when I finally, um, when when I, I when I turned down the to to stand for the orthopaedic association, then about in 2020, two uh, previous presidents phoned me, so I decided to, to uh, speak to my wife Lynn, because she often gives good advice. She's my you know, sort of wise counsel, and she said, "Okay, she'll think about it." She said she thought and prayed about it, and she came back to me and she said, "I think it's time you gave back." Uh-huh. And and. Um, and she was quite right because I, I think I've received I had received so much uh, from the orthopedic community in the country and from the orthopedic Association uh, supporting me maybe in ways that I didn't realize at the time and so so, that, so then I decided yes I would. Say.
0: Yeah, that's a really great concept that part of leadership is really taking time to give back and it's a really great opportunity to be able to do that for our profession. Mm, yeah. So one of the other things that AOA is committed to is identifying and discussing critical issues in orthopedic surgery. Mm, yeah. So what do you see as the critical issues facing the SAOA at this time?
1: So we've got both problems in the, in the public and the private sector. And because of economics, in the public sector, there's, the, there's major funding cuts. So there's a moratorium on new posts. And if people leave the posts at the moment, those posts will be frozen. And like many um, health systems in the world, there is uh, there are too many patients for the number of surgeons. And certainly, in our situation, and so that's the major thing in government. We've also had supply issues, so it's more due to mis- maladministration, Is implants for the government hospitals um, in certain centres that um, those supply chains stopped, so the implants were not getting to but because the the well, the, the the local government was not paying. And, so and was uh,
0: this part of the pandemic, or was this more you know, of a this, political issue?
1: This is more uh, to do with maladministration, perhaps some um, corruption as well. But, but that seems to improve. And that was, in fact, the SOA was the one who discussed with problem and, and got that. And it has improved, but it's yeah. a, a problem. You know. I think in the private sector, we have this... Um, it's a, this concept of universal healthcare that the government is is promoting, which is which is a, a wonderful concept uh, because it's uh, it will uh, try and even out the disparity between private and public medicine because you, you have sort of eighty percent or seventy five percent of doctors servicing fifteen to twenty percent of the population in the private sector and twenty five percent servicing. Uh,
0: 75 or 80% exactly. of
1: the public so, sector. So, so there's this disparity. So they're trying to marry the systems. And, and I think one of the big issues at the moment is that they, they have just passed in government, or preliminary anyway, the national health insurance, which would be a funding model to achieve this. And uh, there's a lot of um, concern that previous um, or, or money going into the coffers... Uh, it may not go to the right places. Anyway, it's, it's still in its infancy, but it's, it is a, it's, it's quite a big concern for everyone at the moment.
0: During your time as a president, were there any critical issue areas that arose or that you concentrated on?
1: One is litigation. So we have had an uh, increase in litigation, which is uh, not certainly not like um, the United States, but um, we, it has been increasing, and largely because um, lawyers uh, previously used to earn quite a lot from what we call the road accident fund, which was a fund that uh, when people had car accidents and, and lawyers would earn from that and they capped the amount lawyers could earn. And so they would focus their attention on doctors who are well insured. And so there has been, uh, that's been a, a bit of an issue. And so we have had to embark on an education program to uh, to the youngsters, to particularly the younger surgeons coming in, to protect themselves to uh, protect themselves or just to be cautious and, 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 and practice in a manner that will hopefully prevent them being that would hold up in court yes
0: and tell me a little bit about the road accident fund
1: so this is a fund that with every vehicle that when we buy fuel that uh, a percentage goes to the road accident fund and so it's a very large fund um, a managed fund and uh, so that will pay for a patient who's involved in a motor vehicle accident, that will pay for their care. and will pay for their care in, in, the, in the private sector.
0: Is the majority of the trauma care that you provide through motor vehicle accidents, or what is the profile for trauma in your country?
1: So the biggest of profile for trauma is, um, is pedestrian
0: um, accidents. Car versus yeah. pedestrian. So we have, that's, that's our largest... Um, and would care. that be covered by this, by this fund?
1: Um, yes. Yes, it is.
0: And d- do you have funds for covering work-related injuries? Yes,
1: so we have workman's compensation, um, and that that also those those patients are um, serviced or looked after in the private sector as well. There are issues. There have been issues from time to time with how the process works, and sometimes it's, it can be quite delayed. But um, and the road Action fund is working. Well, not all the time, but they have a system that if you have a patient at Redexmont and you you, you you contact them, well, they will contact you and say, okay, we've got this patient, one treated, um, particularly if it's uh, if it's um, the consequences of their trauma, and then they will they will pay they will pay for the hospital and, and everyone up front. but it doesn't happen that often, so there, there, there are problems in the system, but they do function.
0: One of the things that we've been hearing a lot about as we have traveled together to the different carousel meetings mm. is physician well-being and physician satisfaction. Mm. Mm. Do you think that your membership has significant issues with that, or what do you think the general state of health is for a South African orthopedic surgeon?
1: Um, certainly, I think we, if you, if, uh, we have quite a good balance, if you, especially the younger surgeons. They have a much better attitude than perhaps my generation did. So they, they see they and, and they practice much better life balance family and and work. Um, so so I don't think we have such an issue as there might be uh, in other countries.
0: And are there restrictions on working and work hours? No, no. And the other issue that we've seen as we've traveled across to the carousel countries has been. Diversity. Yes. Right. So, tell us a little bit about the diversity issues, both gender as well as race ethnicity issues in South Africa, and what's unique in your country. So, of course, we had apartheid, which, which. I mean, the worst thing. One of the, well, it
1: was a terrible system altogether, but it was the education. So, the uh, the uh, black population was given an inferior education purposely. It was called bantu education. And because of that, you have a whole sector of the population who, and they were really trained to be workers, even if they were intelligent. So very few blacks from apartheid days gained an education, like became doctors or became lawyers. Mandela was different, he became a lawyer, that was unusual. Um, so we are very uh, backward in that sense in, in, um, in diversity. However, over the last, we've now been independent, well, not independent, we've had liberation since 1994. So it's nearly 30 years now. So we now have uh, lots of young, educated, well-educated black um, youngsters coming up. And so now, in fact, at one time, if you were black, you would get the job automatically. But now there's um, th- there's enough people with, of quality that get in on, on merit. But like our sports teams, which are become like that. But also women, we now, I think we are now... of our registrars are women, so we've come a long way, I think. I'm not sure how it is in other countries, but we are improving all the time. And it's interesting, because I travel up into Africa, the number of women in surgery is quite high
0: and increasing all the time. It was very nice to see. I did have the um, privilege of being able to attend the South African Female Orthopedic Surgery Association while I was at your annual meeting. And this was their third year yes. of having a meeting together. Yeah. Yeah. So it certainly seems that gender diversity has become higher yeah. on the priority. Right. Yeah. Just to get back a little bit to the racial and ethnicity diversity, since that was such a divisive issue yeah. in South Africa for so many so many years, mm. can you tell us just a little bit about how reparations worked and then where it's at 30 years later?
1: Um. So I have to admit that I never lived in a part outside Africa. I okay. only came to South Africa when it changed. Okay. Um, so so I, I, I did travel there, but um, I think the reparations are probably there was a Truth and Reconciliation um, uh, Council which um, uh, Desmond Tutu ran, and this was so that you know, there could be forgiveness in that. And that, but but I, and that addressed a lot of issues, but it never addressed the uh, economic. Disparity, and that, that that still exists in part today. So, um, but 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 it's it's it is changing slowly. Mm-hmm. But it's all about education, mm-hmm. and I think one of the biggest problems that, uh, that 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 when things changed is that maybe enough emphasis was not put into education, particularly of the um, uh, primary school education. So, uh, you know, people will say the education hasn't changed that much. It has changed, there's no doubt, but there are still issues.
0: So let's talk next about training the next generation now Mm, that we're talking about education. So our uh, AOA membership includes many leaders that are committed to educating competent orthopedic surgeons. Mm, And we're just rolling out a competency-based education across Mm, the United States. Can you just tell us a little bit about the orthopedic surgery training in South Africa and whether you have experience with competency-based medical education?
1: So, uh, and you, you presented this on at our meeting, and I think our system's quite different in the sense that it's getting onto the training program is extremely difficult, and uh, any prospective trainee has to do at least two years in, as a medical officer.
0: So tell us a little bit, after you finish high school, yeah. you go straight into medical school? Yes, so you do medical school for six years. And that's part of your university training?
1: That's your university training. And then after that, you do two years of housemanship or internship, and then another year of community service. So the earliest you'll get into a training program as a, as a, as a, as a regi- well, not as a registrar, then, then you would have to do, the earliest is then you could start orthopedics as an SMO then. But even those jobs are becoming difficult to get. So then you do another two years. So before you start with clinic training, from the time of finishing a medical uh, finishing your school, it's probably eleven years. Mm. Six, three, and yeah, and two.
0: So six years of medical school, okay. three to five years as a medical officer.
1: No, so th- three, two years as a one as community service, and then two years as a medical. officer. As a
0: medical oh, officer, yeah. and then you start your training then program. You start your training. Yeah. And how long is your training program? So it's four years. It's four years. And would that include fellowship training or subspecialty training, or is that only general orthopedics? It's
1: general orthopedics, and then after that, it would be your choice to do a fellowship.
0: What's the age at which most people finish their orthopedic surgery training in the South African system?
1: Well, I think I finished at 35. But, um, so when I finished um, my uh, housemanship I didn't have to do community service in those days. I did two or three years of others. Others I did anaesthetics, and so we tended to do a bit of general stuff before we chose our specialty. So that delayed it. Um, but in my time, I didn't have to do a medical officer job. That's changed only in the last, um, I'm not sure how many years. But now you're looking at so if you're 18, 11 years, you're now 29. You finish. You're going to finish your training in your mid thirties. Yeah.
0: yeah, and it sounds like one of the issues as well with the budget cuts that you were describing mm-hmm. uh, under critical issues is that there aren't, aren't as many residency spots available, or there might not be, depending on what the funding is at each center. No,
1: so that hasn't affected residence space residence or registrar space at this time, but I suspect it may have, have affected in the future. The hope is that if things improve. Economically, that that moratorium on positions or jobs will be lifted, and so they will be placed available.
0: So it sounds like the training in South Africa is considerably longer Mm. than the training that we have in the United States. Yes. Do you feel like individuals finishing in the South African education system are competent, and are there ways that you evaluate that?
1: I mean, as the, the trainees, the, the trainees, yeah. So I think when they when they do their medical officer jobs, they are they're working under people who are attached to the university. So they do get assessed prior to getting onto the surgical training. So it's, so you have to be competent, and they they often get a lot of experience because there's a lot of pathology. So by the time they get on the training, they're well versed in surgery. In fact, one of my um, fellow consultant said he's got two junior registrars and he says they're like consultants. He says they know everything and they can do any operation. Yeah. So he was he says it's very impressive. So but some of them seem end up spending more than two years. So by the time so I would say our training, I think that's why we are often accepted into other countries so easily. Is by the time they finish, if you go if you go certainly the UK, there's so many software clinic services. Of my generation. And that's, I think, because they have had it. They're they're very competent by the time they they finish their residency, the registrator.
0: Yeah. And your predecessor, Dr. Dunn, was telling me a little bit about the work-based assessments that are done. And now that they're requiring some specific procedures, that those be assessed and make sure that everybody, as they go through their training, um, gets assessed on that as well. It sounds like it is a very competitive specialty. Why do you think orthopedics is so competitive at so many different countries around the world, at some point in their system, that it's difficult to gain access to orthopedic surgery training?
1: I have to say that because it's fun. It's the one. It's it's so enjoyable, and it's probably one of the most rewarding specialties because you, you have... Uh, a problem that you sort out and patients in general get better. Okay, not everyone does well, but in general, I mean, I think hip replacement is the, the most successful operation of all operations. Uh, almost. Yeah. So so, uh, so, I think it's very fulfilling. In that yeah. Sense.
0: Uh, What's your favorite operation?
1: I don't really have a favorite one. I do a lot of shoulder replacements because as I'm getting older, I tend to attract the older patients, which I'm quite <laughs> happy about. <laughs> Because they're often the most uh, easy to please, in right? Yes, I would probably say my replacements. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, certainly, you know, as you mentioned, joint replacements, whether it's hips, knees, yeah. shoulder, yeah. can be incredibly satisfying because exactly. of the pain relief and yeah. function that's restored. Yeah. So I think we have that in common for yeah. all the countries that we visit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Basel, for joining me today for this conversation. I think your leadership journey and your experience at the SAOA can really help uh, broaden the mindset of our AOA members and allows greater appreciation of the diversity of orthopedic surgery across the world. It's been my privilege spending time with you discussing these important issues, so thanks again.
1: Thank you so much, Anne.
0: Yeah.